Can I ask you to turn in your Bibles, and I'm asking you this for the last time in this series, uh, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, the last chapter in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel is one book that was split in two for practical reasons, uh, and so we come to the end uh, of Samuel as we read together uh, one Sam, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 1 through to 25. Let's hear God's word this morning. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arur, from the city, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what I shall return, uh, answer, what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died from the people uh, of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the, thresh, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, I will, uh, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the end of our reading and so reads God's word to us this morning. Well, back in 2020, January 2020, before COVID, feels like a long time ago, we started a series in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and with that began a journey with the people of Israel seeking a king to rule over them like all the other nations around them. Along this journey, we saw the people of Israel rejecting Samuel. Samuel was not only the last of the judges uh, in Israel, but he quite uniquely functioned as both a prophet and a priest in Israel. And yet the people said, we don't want Samuel or judges or prophets or priests. We want a king just like the nations around us. Despite Samuel warning them of what an earthly king would do to them, they stubbornly insisted and so began the, the sad story, I hope you will recall, of King Saul. He was the finest human candidate in the whole land, but he was one whom God had rejected. That then led on towards the end of 1 Samuel to the anointing of the shepherd boy David who fought and killed that Philistine giant named Goliath. He was a, a man after God's own heart. He was a mighty warrior for the name and the honor of Yahweh. He was a man of great devotion to God, a man who wrote many of the Psalms, a, a man who, who sang and danced and worshiped in the presence of God. So by the end of 1 Samuel, it, it seemed hopeful that the story had turned a wonderful corner, looking forward with great anticipation to a godly king, a godly king who would reign over Israel in justice and righteousness, a king who would represent God to the people so that the people could represent God to the nations around them. And then we took a break at the end of 1 Samuel for about uh, 18 months until last year, July, we resumed our studies in 2 Samuel, a book which has been almost exclusively focused on the life and the reign of David. So today is sermon number 49 in the combined series, and it brings us to the end of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I think we must all admit 
from a human perspective, if 1 Samuel could be summarized as a, a huge disappointment, then 2 Samuel must surely be summarized as a great tragedy. Granted, it wasn't always bad news. There were a few highlights along the way as we considered Back in 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David, uh, a wonderful portion of scripture. We also saw times when God gave Israel rest from all their enemies as they were subdued under David. But I think we can acknowledge that the general trajectory of the storyline of 1 and 2 Samuel has mostly been a downward one. One of God's people constantly falling short of the glory of God. God's king constantly failing miserably to be the, the faithful king that God required for the people to be faithful to the covenant that God had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so if you were to come to the end of your two-volume biography of the life of Samuel and Saul and David, 55 chapters in the making, how would you have chosen to end it all off? To be honest, I don't think I would have ended with 2 Samuel 24. If it was up to me, I would have ended kind of the beginning of Shane's sermon last week, 2 Samuel 23, 1 to 7, uh, the final words of David the king. And I think the reason I would have ended there is because in my human nature, I still want David to be the hero. But thankfully, God is the author of Scripture. And so as we come to the end of the story, as God has recorded it for us, we end to Samuel not actually with our focus on David, but with our focus on God. And I hope to show you that this morning with a chapter which ties together many of the themes and the threads that we've seen throughout the story so far in a way which shows us through all the failures of king and country, that God is faithful to save a people for his very own possession. And so that's why we've entitled the sermon this morning, The Gospel According to Samuel. Because as we will see, chapter 24 follows the same structure, the same pattern of the presentation of the gospel as found in all of Scripture. And it's summarized for us here in God's dealings with both David and the nation of Israel. So in the first place today, we need to start any gospel presentation with God's character of holiness. And we see this in verse 1. You and I will, will never understand our need for salvation. We will never believe in the gospel unless we have a right understanding of the holiness of God. Verse 1 starts by telling us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now because we've been so focused on David for the majority of 2 Samuel, we might have forgotten about Israel. And so verse 1 reminds us that as much as David has sinned, and we've seen that and we know that, David failed God in so many ways, so too the nation of Israel has kindled the anger and the wrath of God against them because of their sin. We're not told specifically what it was that, that they did but even just looking back over the last few chapters, we've, we've seen both the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. They both turned their back on David as their king. They followed Absalom. And then they followed Sheba. 
They rejected David as the Lord's anointed and, and so effectively rejected God as their ultimate king. But the point is not really about the specifics of Israel's sin. It's that God is holy, that God cannot ignore sin. He cannot allow sin to continue unpunished. And he certainly cannot leave those who are called by his name to, to disregard his law and to continue in their own sinful ways. So verse one reminds us that God is holy and the day comes when this holy God's patience and forbearance towards sinners reaches its end and God calls for a record of accounts. But secondly, if we want to present the gospel message faithfully, we need to also recognize God's character of sovereignty. It's also in verse one. It's a little bit hidden, and I hope to show that to you. And I don't want to get sidetracked, but it is important because I know if I don't deal with this, someone's going to come to me afterwards and say, but what about one chronicle? So let, let me show you here that in verse one, we are told that the Lord incited David against Israel in this decision to number Israel, to carry out a census of his military men. Now what is very difficult for us as Christians to process is the reality that God is sovereign over even the sinful decisions and actions of human beings and even sovereign over Satan himself. So please turn ahead with me to 1 Chronicles 21. So we've got Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles, Chronicles. Turn to 1 Chronicles 21. This is the parallel account we have there. And let's read carefully what 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 and 2 says. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Job and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. Did you see that? In 2 Samuel, we are told that the Lord incited David against Israel. And here in 1 Chronicles 21, we are told that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So was it God or was it Satan? Well, the answer is surely it was both God and Satan. Let me just mention here, and, and you will see this in some of your Bibles, that there is a footnote next to Satan in, in 1 Chronicles 21, which says an adversary. Not all Bibles have it, but some do. An adversary stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, just for clarity, the, the word, the Hebrew word for Satan and adversary is the same word. And so the context needs to dictate. Is it a, an enemy or is it Satan? And usually when the Bible is referring to the person, Satan, then it places the definite article before the name. In other words, the adversary. That's Satan. And without the definite article, it becomes an adversary, more general. Now in this 1 Chronicles passage, there is no definite article. There's, and, and so there's a strong case to, to be made for translations which say an adversary opposed Israel. And the, the argument there would be that 
an enemy nation, an adversary arose to oppose David in battle. And so David then decided in response to, to number his armies, to get a good handle on, on the power of his military might, perhaps so that he could deter his enemies by showing them how great his military prowess was, that they should better back down. It's a little bit like we see on television when the Chinese or the, the North Korean or the Russian armies gathering their thousands in the courtyards to portray to the other nations, don't come near us, we're strong. Well, that's the one argument. But having said that, the three main English translations that we use, the ESV, the NIV, and the Christian Standard Bible, all translate 1 Chronicles 21 as on the screen. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David. Well, either way, we have a problem. Because whether it was an enemy nation or whether it was Satan himself that incited David to call for this military census, when we go back to 2 Samuel 24, we are told that the Lord was behind this. God was in control. And so we need to keep the, the clear truths of Scripture in mind when we come to difficult verses like this to understand. And what is clear from the rest of Scripture is that God is never the author of or responsible for sin. James 1 tells us this explicitly. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 reminds us that God is too pure to even look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So what we see when we look more widely at Scripture is that God's holiness, which we've seen in point one, is never compromised by God's sovereignty. Even though God is sovereign over the sinful hearts of wicked men, and even though he is sovereign over the motives and the actions of Satan himself. And we see some examples of this in Scripture. Job is probably one of the clearest. Uh, it's Satan who seeks to destroy Job, who brings all the calamity into Job's life. But if we read the text in Job 1, we see that this all happens according to the purposes of God. God is the one who says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? We see the same truth revealed in the most evil act of Satan and evil men ever perpetrated in the history of the world with the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost, look at Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the sovereignty of God over the crucifixion of Jesus. But this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless, wicked, evil men. God purposed it, you did it. So if you are and I are to understand the gospel this morning, we need to understand that God is both holy and sovereign. In his holiness, he will not let sin go unpunished. And in his sovereignty, he will call every human being to give an account for every sinful desire and word and action which they have committed. 
even though nothing happens outside of his control and his purpose. If you want more on that, you can ask the Lord when you get there. But this leads me then to the next aspect of the gospel message, which is David's sin uh, in verses 2 to 9. In these verses, David commits a serious offense against God in calling Job and the commanders of the army to now go across the whole land of Israel from top to bottom and to number the people in what seems to be a military census. Even Job thinks it's a bad idea, but David's king, he gets his own way, and so Job embarks on this nine and a half month journey to count every fighting man across the whole land. Now, we aren't really told exactly what the sin was that David committed in doing this. There are various suggestions. Probably the most compelling explanation for David's sin comes from his failure to collect what has become known as the census tax from the people. We don't have time this morning, but you can read about that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 to 16, in which God called for every person to pay a half shekel as an offering to the Lord to make atonement for their lives whenever there was a census. So we are not told this specifically, but that could well be the basis for David's sin here. But when we get down to verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24, it does seem that, that David's sin is, is a much more personal sin. It's much more of a heart sin. And so others believe that this was a sin of pride. This was a sin of, of self-reliance. David wanting to number his army to try and blow his own trumpet as a great king particularly at the end of his life, to show that it was his military might which had saved them and would save them instead of trusting in Yahweh to win their battles for them. Well, whatever it was, we're not too sure. David's sinned against God and either the motive for the census or in the way that he carried out the census, it doesn't really matter. David knew that he had sinned greatly against the Lord and acted in great foolishness. Look at verse 10. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So the details don't really matter because we don't need to be convinced that David is a sinner. Uh, we've seen the reality of his sinfulness throughout this series. But sadly, I think one of the biggest obstacles today to people understanding and believing the gospel is for us to recognize our own sin. Man, we are so good at recognizing the sin in others. But we are terrible at seeing it in ourselves. And until we do, we will never see the need to repent and trust in Jesus. And so that leads to the next truth of the gospel which we see in this passage. And that is the need to confess our sin and repent before God. And so in the fourth place, in verse 10, we see David's confession. But just before we look at this confession, let me point out that although we might have struggled earlier in verse 1 with with the fact that God incited David to number his men, or Chronicles, which said that Satan incited David to do it. Look at verse 10. We see that David does not come in verse 10 and say, it's not fair, Lord. You forced me to do this thing. 
Notice he doesn't go in the other direction either. He doesn't say, the devil made me do it. No, David's understanding of his own heart, the sinfulness of his own heart is such that he says, despite God being sovereign over evil, despite the devil's involvement in this, David says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. The work of the Holy Spirit in saving sinners always begins with a deep conviction of sin. As we see here in verse 10, the ESV says David's heart struck him. Other translations talk about him being conscience stricken or troubled in his conscience. His guilt was upon him. And what we must appreciate here is that David is the king. David is not conscience-stricken here because he's been found out by a parent or by a police officer. No, David was in charge. Technically speaking, it was David's army that was counted. It had been a public affair for nine and a half months. So when we are told that his heart was struck with guilt, this is a supernatural work of God's grace in his life. As the king of Israel, David was accountable to no other human being, but he always remained accountable to God. And so his heart condemns him, his conscience condemns him before God. And we see he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to minimize his sin. He simply confesses it all before God and he seeks for God to forgive him. This reminds us of Psalm 51 that we've looked at previously after the sin with Bathsheba, David's confessing against you and you only have I sinned. How does your attitude to your sin reflect this attitude of David's genuine confession of his sin before God? Have you truly known what it means to be struck to the heart conscience-stricken by your own sinfulness and transgression and foolishness against God and cried out to him to forgive you, to remove your guilt before his holy presence. Well, the next point is difficult for us because if we are true to being or true to understand and believe the gospel, we also need to understand that sin has consequences. We see this in verses 11 to 13. You cannot explain the gospel message to someone and pretend that sin does not have consequences. Despite David's recognition and confession of his sin, all sin carries with it great consequence. Young people, can I mention that to you early on in your life? All sin carries with it great consequence. And even though we will see that God's mercy often abounds to us as sinners, nevertheless, we must understand that God's grace to us does not always remove the consequence of our sin. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them. So Gad came and told David, three years of famine may come on the land, three months of fleeing before your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of pestilence in the land. Consider 
and decide as king what punishment will come upon the land. Now we must not forget that although on one hand David is the focus here, David's the one who sinned. Don't forget verse one. Verse one told us as the precursor to this whole chapter that the anger of God was kindled against Israel. And so David is both a member of Israel and he's the federal head of Israel. And so the people are not being punished here for David's sin, but rather David's sin simply identifies him with the sins of the people as their king. And so David is given this choice to make. And we won't get sidetracked with which one is potentially the most destructive. The point is that sin carries with it consequence. And I marvel at God's wisdom here. Sometimes the consequence of sin is a slow, lengthy consequence that eats away at the fruitfulness of our lives like a famine. Sometimes the consequence of sin is an intense violence which comes on us and those affected by our sin like war. And sometimes the consequence of our sin is a very short but very devastating consequence, like a plague. It doesn't really matter. The wages of sin always leads to death. in Various shapes and forms, and, and if left undealt with, it leads to eternal death. Now, many people at this point in explaining the gospel, if you followed the, the five steps so far, you might want to at this point jump straight to Jesus. I mean, we've seen God's holiness. We've seen God's sovereignty. We've seen man's sinfulness and guilt. And now we've ultimately seen sin's consequences. Let's get to Jesus. But we would be distorting the gospel if we did not see another aspect of God's character which is crucial if we are to understand and believe the gospel. And that is God's character of justice in verse 14 and 15. Let's read these verses again. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and they died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. We'll get to God's mercy in a minute, but verse 15 reveals something of God's justice, that all sin must be punished and that God's punishment always befits the crime. In three days, God's justice demanded that the people of Israel give an account for their sin and their rebellion. And just as the census had numbered everyone from, from Dan to Beersheba, so now God's justice is revealed across the whole land. Now, if you do the maths, that's 70,000 of 1.3 million. It's just over 5% of the number of the men in the census. So it's actually a very small percentage of the whole nation, especially if you were to add the additional men and women and children. But just think about it like this for a minute. If this same plague of 2 Samuel 24 struck us as God's people at Honey Ridge Baptist over the next three days, based on the numbers of people attending our two morning services, 22 men would have dropped dead. It's not just a number on a page, is it? Look around you. 
22 grieving homes, 22 widows, many more children growing up without a father. From Dan to Beersheba, the whole land of Israel was guilty of sinning against God. God's justice demanded the death of everyone. All 1.3 million fighting men deserved to die. All the other women and children deserved to die for their sin. But in three days, only 70,000 died. It's a shadow. The day is coming when God's justice will require each and every person who has ever lived to stand before this throne of God's justice and we'll have to give an account. And apart from divine intervention, as we're about to see, every single human being will have to die for their own sins. Our God is a God of justice. Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You might say, hang on, Clinton, you said at the beginning that today's sermon is entitled The Gospel According to Samuel. And the gospel is good news, but everything we've seen so far is bad news. We've seen God's holiness, God's sovereignty, our sinfulness, our guilt, sin's consequence, and God's justice. Where's the good news? Well, it's here in the final attribute of God, which closes out the whole book of 2 Samuel, namely God's mercy. And we see this in verse 14, it's mentioned there, and then fleshed out in verses 16 to 25. We see in verse 14 that David chooses the three-day plague primarily not because it was the shortest, but because this punishment laid them squarely under the mercy of God. David said, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. This reminds us the words of the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3. Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your works in these years. Make it known in these years. But in your wrath, remember mercy. In your holiness, in your justice, remember mercy. The most amazing picture of God's mercy unfolds before us in verse 16. Just look at chapter 24, verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. We get a bit more detail in 1 Chronicles 21. As David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem, then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. What an amazing account, a, a foreshadowing of the day of judgment which awaits us when God will send his angels across the four corners of the earth and he will separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the, the weeds and finally destroy all those who have not bowed the knee to Christ. But the good news is that with our God, there is mercy. And so as the angel is approaching Jerusalem where David is, where the largest concentrated number of people in all of Israel lived, 
as he approached the city, we are told that God saw something. God saw and speaks and says, enough, enough, hold your sword. What was it that God saw? What was it that caused God to relent from his justice and his anger against Israel? He saw David and all the elders in Israel clothed in sackcloth as a symbol of their repentance before God and they fall on their faces as they plead for mercy. We cannot explore this in much detail this morning, but I need to just end by showing you three things about the mercy of God that are required for God to have relented from his wrath and justice against sinners. It's what I hinted at at the communion table this morning. We see firstly that mercy needs a mediator. In verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and he said, Behold, I have sinned, I've done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. What we see here is that David stands in the gap between the holy justice of God and a sinful people. David knows that Israel has sinned against God, but in this moment as their federal head, he places himself as the substitute for their punishment. He takes full responsibility for his own sin. He asks God to punish him and his family instead of them. Now, we know what David desires to do here was completely overstated. For there is no way that David could bear the wrath of God against Israel. He deserved the full wrath of God against himself for his own sin. David had no credit with which to negotiate the salvation of the people of Israel. But in his action as a mediator, as one who stands in the gap for sinners in order to turn away the wrath of God, to propitiate the wrath of God, David is but a faint shadow of his perfect greatest son to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come to actually stand in the gap for sinners, actually to take upon himself the sins of the world and to suffer the wrath of God in our place. That's why Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Picked up from David. These sheep, what have they done? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Secondly, we see that mercy needs a place. Uh, verse 18 to 24 we see that these verses take place in a very specific location where the angel of judgment stopped. And it's called the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And the prophet Gad then tells David he must go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. And despite Aruna's willingness to give it to David along with the oxen and the wood for the sacrifice, we are told that David insists on buying it for 50 shekels of silver. Now, if you do the conversion, that's not much, but it is a fair price for the oxen and for the threshing floor. But in the account, the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21, we are told there that David bought the entire place, the entire property belonging to Aruna, a large piece of land for 600 shekels of gold, 
which in today's value is about six million rand. Why is this so significant? What's so significant about this place? Well, in 2 Chronicles 3, some years later, David's son Solomon built the temple. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna, just a different version of his name, the Jebusite. So not only was this the exact spot where the temple of God would be constructed, but this threshing floor of Aruna was also the ancient Mount Moriah. What happened on Mount Moriah? This is the spot where many years before God told Abraham to take his son Isaac and to sacrifice him on an altar to the Lord. And as Abraham drew his sword to kill his son Isaac on the altar that he had built, an angel of the Lord cried out, Abraham, stop, enough. And the Lord provided a substitute. He provided a ram caught in a thicket in his place. It was in this same place that God stopped the angel of death from destroying Jerusalem because God recalled his covenant with Abraham that through Abraham's offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was at the same spot that God saw David clothed in sackcloth with his face to the ground and God recalled the covenant he made with David that through his offspring, one would come who would reign over God's people forever. It was on this spot for the next 1,000 years that God's people would come day after day, week after week, year after year, to bring sacrifices to God to make atonement for their sins so that they might receive mercy. It's quite amazing then when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus came to find that the place of mercy was not the temple on Mount Moriah. That was the shadow. The real place of mercy was another hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary, where Jesus was nailed to a cross. But on that occasion, God did not cry, stop, enough. No, at that place, God poured out all of his wrath against your sin and mine in full. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. It's also not surprising then that mercy no longer needs an earthly place. The location of Calvary is thankfully forgotten, no matter what the Israel tour guides will tell you. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 because the place of mercy is now the throne of grace where Jesus occupies in heaven. And then finally, and with this I close, we see that mercy needs a sacrifice in verse 25. This two-volume history of God's dealing with his rebellious, sinful people ends with a wonderful proclamation of the gospel. Just look at verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Salvation through sacrifice. That is the storyline of the Bible. 
pointing us forward to God's ultimate salvation and perfect final sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus approaching him in the wilderness? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how does the Bible end in Revelation 5? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That brings us to the end of David's story. It's a story of a sinner saved by the grace of a merciful God. But David's story is not only a shadow which points us to Jesus. We've seen that many times in the series. I hope you recognize today that David's story is also a shadow of your story and mine. We too are sinners in the hand of an angry God and we need mercy. Praise God that Jesus is our mediator, that Jesus is our place, that Jesus is our sacrifice and may we all embrace this gospel according to Samuel and trust in Jesus today and always for our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus. It is all about our need for Jesus to be our savior. Lord, won't you do in the hearts of those this morning that do not yet know you what you did to David, that you would strike their consciences with guilt before you, that they might run to you in confession and faith and repentance and look to Jesus, the only perfect substitute to be their salvation. Help us, Lord, who are already saved by the Lord Jesus Christ to then live our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, for this is our spiritual worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.